Welcome to Rough Drafts, how God writes his love in our stories, a podcast that explores the faith journeys of our friends and neighbors in Burns, Tennessee. Everyone has a story to tell. And in this podcast, we'll hear powerful and inspiring stories of how God works in the ordinary lives of people like you and me. Our stories are unfinished and perfectly imperfect. They're just rough drafts, a glimpse of what is to come because God is still at work, writing plot twists, introducing new characters, and bringing good even from the most challenging circumstances. Join us as we see what God is up to in our stories. Here's your host, Matthew Hyatt. Today's guest has been everywhere, man. Uh, She has been doing the Lord's work in Louisiana with the Duck Dynasty. She's been at Timothy Hill Children's Ranch in New York. She has been in Mexico. She has been in Uganda. And I think the most exotic location of all that she's worked is the the rugged terrain of White Bluff, Tennessee. It was a a barren, godforsaken wasteland. (laughs) But she's done all sorts of things. Today's guest is uh, truly a minister in all sorts of different ways with different hats, different titles in different places. And you're going to love her passion for the Lord. So, Marsha, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. How do you feel about this? I, a little excited, a little nervous. A microphone always, you know, gives one pause. You know, I try to let some of our guests think we're going to video it. And then when they find out there's not video, the microphone sounds a whole lot oh, less bad. Oh, you that's know, you know. <laughs> Oh, we're not recording? This isn't so bad. You know. <laughs> That would finish me off if we were videoing. It's called psychological warfare. (laughs) It's against the Geneva Convention. I don't know. Well, Marcia, you have been everywhere and you have done all sorts of cool stuff. Literally, yeah. I love that your husband's name tag at church literally says Big Al. Big Al. Um, I didn't realize that's how we ordered it, but when it came in, it just made me smile. It is perfect. Yeah. So what's your God story? Where do you want to start? Um, I've... Thought and prayed about this for about a week and just, you know, thinking, oh, goodness, there's so much. There's so much packed into this 72 plus years I've lived. And um, the place really, the only logical place is just the beginning. Um, I was born and raised in Dixon right off of Highway 48 um, on Harmon Springs Road into a very, very dysfunctional family. Um, my dad was a World War II survivor, um, was in the Pacific Theater, all the worst of the worst, um, really a broken man because of that. But that came on the heels of a very, uh, he was one of eight siblings, a very unloving, cold family. Then my mother Um, was one of seven siblings opposite in that there was a lot of love. Um, It was a Christian home, but um, my mother was the oldest of the seven, and so she was very much a fixer. And so the way I kind of sum it up is they were two really good people who were toxic to each other. And so my young years were just chaos, you know. I mean, literal fights, um, yelling, screaming. My dad was a very angry man, appeared very unloving, but I, I somehow knew he loved me, even though he didn't know how to, he didn't know how to display it. He didn't know how to be affectionate. But at some point, 
don't even remember when. God's just been writing my story so faithfully my whole life. I just remember pivotal moments. And at some point, I just came to the conclusion that they were imperfect people just like me who did the best they could. Didn't They didn't have counselors. They didn't have, you know, people to turn to and somehow just had to muddle through. And so that was my kind of, that was my childhood. And so I was the first of, oh, and let me throw in, they lost their first child at the age of two. And so my dad, the broken man, became even more locked away and um, broken. And so I was born into that and very much became that firstborn type A, don't disappoint anybody. You know, I, the opposite of chaos is what I want. If this is what marriage is, I just won't get married. I'm going to follow all the rules, make a list, check it twice, you know, do everything right, which when does that ever work? <laughs> Never. Excel spreadsheets are yeah. so nice. Yeah. I mean, they make you feel wonderful. I mean, you notice I brought a list with me today. She did, and a book. And a book. Um, but I just, um, I, I struggled in that chaos you know, just trying to make order out of it, I guess. Um, my mom and dad later divorced um, after 43 years of marriage, and my dad became a different man. I mean, I love you was common. Uh, we were able to take care of him at the end of his life. Um, my mom didn't fare so well with that divorce, but for my dad, it seemed to um, bring out who he could have, would have, should have been all along. Um, so then Al and I met young. Um, we were, oh, and let me throw in a pivotal thing. I remember distinctly the night I was baptized. Yeah. I remember what I had on. Mm -hmm. It was a hot summer night. I had on a little outfit my mom had made me, and it was a Sunday night, and I walked down that aisle, and made it known that I wanted to be baptized in an anti-Church of Christ. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. <clears throat> so They were the, the non-institutionals, the no Sunday school. No, yeah, yeah. you don't building. use the Lord's money to support. Social activities. Right. No children's homes. Right, no. and no kitchen in the church. No, but you could have a bathroom. Yes, but no kitchen. I just yeah. always thought yeah. that was funny. Drove me crazy even then. But I just don't remember a time when I didn't love Jesus. Yeah. I, I just don't remember not being in love with Jesus and wanting to do the right things. I don't want to derail you, and you may get to this, but do you remember your earliest memory of knowing about Jesus, knowing about God? You said that was always there. So yeah. is there a beginning to it? or? Well, the beginning to it is really my mom, who in spite of the chaos was such a woman of faith, and also my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, and grandfather. He was an elder in the church. My grandmother taught classes. Um, I had really good Bible class teachers um, that that impacted me. So even from a very early age, you know, I just remember, boy, you know, this Jesus, That that's where it is, you know. Now, my faith from those early years kind of rooted in fear to my faith now are completely different 
animals. So explain what you mean when you said your faith was rooted in fear. I remember very clearly at night before I would go to sleep praying that I hadn't disappointed Jesus in some way, that I had I done everything I should do, had I not done all the things and fearing that I might not wake up or that disaster might strike and would I go to heaven or would I go to hell? You know, just that constant fear of, am I good enough? Yeah. Well, no. And you know, that kind of built, puts a fork in the road for a lot of people because mm-hmm. most, well, I, I don't want to say most, but a lot of people, when when faith is divine fire insurance, it's get out of hell free insurance, mm-hmm. when it is entirely fear-based, at some point you get to the point where you realize you're not good enough and I might as well give up trying and right. just have some fun. Right. And I did that for a little while. Okay. But anyway, so... Al and I met young. Um, I'm the older woman. I was 16. He was 15. Wow. Yeah, I robbed the cradle. <laughs> and uh, I remember a call. There was a little teen club in Dixon, and um, we met there. We were dancing. And um, so I remember calling my mom and telling her I'd met who I was going to marry. Really? Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know, really know why. I just, but we really didn't get along that well in high school. He dated one of my good friends. What a jerk! I know, right? And um, so we didn't, you know, didn't really mesh at that point. I graduated a year earlier. Went on to um, went to Lipscomb for a year, um, and then we reconnected in about 1970. And from then on, it was. You know, the rest is history. We married young. He was 19. I was 20. And, you know, as I think about that, he had an even more chaotic upbringing than I did. Lost his mother. His father abandoned them very young. Uh, left his mom and four kids. His mother got killed when he was like 13. Then it was step father, stepmother, step, you know, and basically he just raised himself. So to think that the two of us married, oh my word, there's not one reason that should have worked. A couple of reasons we made it. One is just dogged determination, and we knew that we'd committed to this thing, and we were very much in love and, you know, just dedicated to do the right thing. Um when in 1972 found us uh, expecting Holly, our first, and we up to that point, he had kind of like I did a maternal uh, grandfather who was very influential in his life. would drag him off the baseball field when it was time to go to church, um, kind of was his spiritual mentor. And so we both had those roots, but we didn't act like it the you know first couple of years. Um, but Wait, are you telling me that the trend of people in their early 20s not having a lot of interest in religion isn't a new thing? No, it is, in fact, a very old thing. Yeah. So we fell right into that. Yeah. Um, but when I just realized that I was carrying this other human being, not just a human being, but a soul, I thought, oh, my, I got to I got to get this thing. To, you know, I, I got to I gotta do the right thing now. And so we were living in White Bluff, and I started going to church at White Bluff just because his parents went there. His dad had 
come back years later and remarried and uh, still not a very nice man. But anyway, he was there. Yeah. And so I started going there and I was working full time. And so I knew that for me, the only way I would stay involved is to be involved. And so I started, I was there three times a week. You know, I, I started teaching classes. I, I committed myself to the point. Al wasn't ready for that. And in fact, he, and he, he'll tell you this himself, he would plan things. Like he would invite people over on Sunday night and say, oh, we've got some friends coming over. And I'd say, well, y'all have fun. I'll see you about 7.15, yeah. you know. And because I just knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that God had to be first. Yeah. And he had to be second. And, you know, it's funny. I, I don't say this with judgment because this is how it, it will get hurt if I'm not real careful. I don't judge people who aren't very involved in church. You come to church two Sundays a month. Mm-hmm. But what I know is if you get in and you do more stuff than just show up a couple times a month, mm-hmm. that's when it actually does something productive for your soul. You gotta Otherwise, be plugged you're in. just listening to a kind of crummy lecture and a kind of crummy concert. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, getting involved is where where stuff happens. Yes. That's the magic. But when I say that, everybody thinks I'm just trying to recruit more volunteers, you know. Well, you have to say that. Well, and the truth is, there's a lot of stuff that has to be done to make things happen. Yeah. You know, somebody does communion and somebody cleans and somebody organizes and somebody cooks. And, you but know, the thing is, if we do that stuff right, like when I'm at church on a Saturday preparing communion, um, I don't want that just to be free labor for the church. Mm-hmm. Look, we could hire we could hire a felon to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know... It, it's it's a it's a training thing. It's a I am serving other people, the memorial of Jesus. Yeah, like it shouldn't. Even when you're sweeping the floors of the building, it's not just I'm a janitor. It's do everything. Whatever you do, do for the Lord. Yeah, somebody should put that in a book. I know, right? You know, but like getting involved in church involvement is yeah. not just about getting a task done. It's about letting it form you. And mm-hmm. maybe this is the PSA we ought to give here. Um, if if you're volunteering at church and you're not doing it that way, rethink it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. whether you're teaching a kid's class or painting the parking lot. Absolutely. Okay. Sorry. I keep derailing you. No, no, no. That's not a derailment. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard anything about this or not, but well, A, I went in 1974 for the first time. And this is where my my faith transition or whatever you want to call it, started. But in 1974, out of the clear blue sky, a bunch of people were going to go to the soul-winning workshop in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. What an event that was. And I, uh, we had had Wes by this point. Wes was six months old, and I tried to talk myself out of going. And Al was very, I mean, he was very, if I wasn't there, he took the kids to church. He wanted them to go. And he encouraged me to go, even though he was not involved. And I was like a kid in a candy store. I was exposed to such um, powerful praise and worship, such powerful speakers, concepts I had never heard. And it kind of started planting that seed of maybe, just maybe, this is different than, than I've experienced. You know, this grace, this mercy, this Holy Spirit. You know, and I was, I came home just so on fire. Um, 
and that was 74, um, continued to go to that every March. And then in 80, when we had the workshop, um, without saying a word to me, and I don't even remember what night it was, but when the invitation song started to be sung, Al stepped out and went down the aisle, and that'll make me cry. That's okay. You know, but... um. He had, as is typical of him, very quietly resolved in his mind and didn't even share it with me. Well, to say that when Al commits to something, he commits. Yeah. And from that point on, it was just, there was no turning back. Just as a, we moved to Florida just briefly um, for about a year and a half for him to work on a condominium down there. And we decided if he was going, we were all going. And we got plugged in with a really small little church. And the first time we were there, they said, and Brother Al Griffin's going to lead the closing prayer. And he was scared to death because he had never, never led a public prayer, never taught. I mean, he was restored, whatever you want to call it. And then we moved to Florida shortly after I love that story because when when I look at an owl, like the idea of him being scared of anything yeah. is just a little hard for me yeah. to fathom because he's big owl. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so he it was a great it, it was just such a God plan because it was a small church. It was a really good group of people, uh, just a good place for him to get his feet wet and learn to serve publicly and I love small churches yeah. for what they do for Yeah. You know, they may not afford to send 10,000 missionaries. They may not, you know, they're not as much fun in some, they don't get the attention that mm-hmm. the church does. Yeah. But really good things happen for spiritual formation. Oh, absolutely. It was the best thing that could have happened to him. So, you know, I and I mentioned before we started the life growing up in Dixon and growing up in the 50s when everybody got married they didn't work they had kids they stayed home daddy went to work and you know I just thought I'd get married and you know have kids and live there the rest of my life and that is so far from what God had planned um it just you know everything that I'll share today is just further confirmation of just how how crazy this ride has been. Yeah. So um, we came back from Florida. Um, we just stepped in at White Bluff, you know, got very involved. 1982 was a really exciting year. We had come back from Florida. We decided to sell the little first house we had, build a house, and we decided to adopt a 13-year-old. Well, that's fun. I know, right? <clears throat> so... Um, that's not for the faint of heart. Uh, he was at Happy Hills Boys Ranch when it existed in Ashland City, and we got the Agape newsletter, and he was on the front. His name was Michael, and um, he had been there for five years, and we had talked about adopting. At this point, we had Holly and Wes, and they were 10 and 6, and we had just talked about, you know, we were so naive and so had such good intentions you know and we thought we've got enough love to share and let's share it with a child that you know is not going to be that fortunate and so um our son took that paper and folded it up and put it in his pocket and he would take it out like four times a day and say read me again mama about michael well every time he read it 
I read it to him, you know, it was just more of, huh, you know, is this is this supposed to be? So I called Agape and they said, you know, they know what they're doing. They said, let's just do a home study and whether it's Michael or not, you'll be ready, you know. And so, I mean, we did the home study. We met him at a restaurant you know we talked and we ended up adopting him in 1982 that was a very trying um several years um he at that time they don't tell you what adopting they didn't tell you what adopting an older child could and probably will mean so um there were blessings in it and we'd do it again you know we wouldn't change anything but tough yeah very tough i mean it's tough on everybody it and about that during those same years we got when i say we were involved at church that's the biggest understatement i could ever convey remember bus ministry yeah we did the bus not once or twice Three times a week. Oh, wow. I stood up front bouncing and teaching and Monday, singing. Tuesday, Thursday. How'd you <laughs> no. do? Yeah. Sunday morning, Sunday night, which means we had to be at church an hour before, and it was an hour later. We've bundled our kids up in blankets when it was, you know, 20 degrees and tried to get the bus warmed up. Wednesday nights, we were part of the puppet team. We did camp. We went to camp for 18 straight years. We did every, we were counselors. We were puppet team. We were teachers. We were, I mean, and I, I don't say any of that to toot our horns, but in two things, well, the good thing is people like Martha Beth and Monica and so many kids, well, we were youth directors too, so. We won't forget that. Hang on. We do have a rule on this podcast. We don't say things that are nice about Monica Gossett. That's that's one of the rules. So just, just tread carefully here. But we, we I think, had an impact on their lives. You did. Um, that hopefully will be an eternal but impact. You've heard the episode of Martha Beth. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very touched by that. Um, but there are two aspects to that. There are the good things. But we were overly involved. Yeah. And I feel like our kids paid a price for that um, because we, it, it, life was just, a, you know, it was just chaos. You know, we, we always had to be somewhere, you know. And so many of the things we did with youth group, our kids weren't old enough to do. And if you stuck by the rules, you know, they couldn't do that. And so I always caution people, you know prayerfully consider how you're going to serve, where you're going to serve, because I think we try to serve places God never intended us to serve in the first place. And so I don't I don't know that we'd do it any different, but I have learned to be, I don't, I don't feel bad saying no anymore. Yeah. I, I'm careful about what I choose to do and when I choose to do it. And unfortunately, Burns got us on the tail end of life, you know, uh, <laughs> You're you're not going to reap the benefits of those. But you know, we're going to reap the benefits of when you say yes to something, it's going to be a, a good yes, and it's going to yeah. be a God yes, and yeah. it's going to be a full-throated yes, not a yes because yes is the default answer. Yeah. Well, we kind of had the who else is going to do it. 
you know, because we would literally try to get somebody to sub for us on the bus and everybody had a reason they couldn't, you know, and so. And that is a legitimately difficult, that's a tough ministry. Yeah, that's yeah. a hard, that's a big It task. is a hard ministry. But I've I've learned through that and I had somebody complain to me one time at Pagram that, you know, I can't find anybody to work in the cradle roll. I just can't find anybody. And I said, well, maybe God had an ordained cradle roll. Maybe it's not a ministry that's not meant to be right now. You know, I, I think uh, sometimes there's two answers. If we can't find a Sunday school teacher, we announce if we don't have a Sunday school teacher by X week, we're going to cancel that class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that for two reasons. One is a little bit of a threat. Yeah. Uh, because there are there are going to be some people at church who are lazy. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's just the way it so is. So there's some people who need some motivation. Mm-hmm. But at the other token, and that's not everyone who says no, there are lots of good reasons to say no besides laziness. Yeah. Um, but one of the hardest things churches do is killing something. Um, you know, there's churches that have done the same program for 400 years and don't realize it has to change or it has to die. It has to be replaced. Yeah. It, it's hard to kill a Just program. because we think it's a good idea doesn't mean God thinks it's a good idea. Yeah. Or it's the right time or the right place or the right... You know, there's there's all kind of reasons. Well, not everybody will agree with me on this, but uh, our transition to small groups and loofs and the nights to me is one of those. We should have done that 15 years before we did. Oh, uh, because what's happening in small groups right now on the average week, we have twice as many people involved as we ever did on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. And on average, they're staying at these places three hours as opposed to the one hour they were right. doing on Sunday. If right. you want to talk about what's happening, so much more is happening. Mm-hmm. So much more good is happening. Yeah. You know. We've had small groups uh, adopt people to take care of somebody who had a financial need. We've had small yeah. groups adopt taking care of the building or, or the service project. We had a small group go help clean up CareNet one day. Mm-hmm. You know, Sunday night never just popped up and said, hey, let's go do a service project together. Yeah. It's yeah. different. But yeah. Homes have a whole different dynamic. We we did it so long one way, it was hard for people to recognize. Well, when I got to Burns, the average Sunday night attendance was 42 and the average Sunday morning attendance was about 80. Oh, wow. Um, in 2019, 20, early 20, um, our Sunday morning average attendance right before COVID was 205. And our Sunday night average attendance was, are you ready for this? And I'm not lying. This number is true. I did the math. 42. 42. The exact same. So Sunday morning had almost tripled yeah. in Sunday night. And I'd be willing to wager that the 42 were, and I, I can elaborate on that a little bit when I tell you the next thing, but are are, are were steeped in that do not forsake the assembly. This you know? is what we have to do. Yeah, we've got to. It's a box to check. Yeah. And I don't mean that mean. I, just I love mean. them. I appreciate them. Mm-hmm. I respect their view. But mm-hmm. on Sunday morning and on Wednesdays here, when people come in, they came in excited. On mm-hmm. Sunday nights... They filed in and they filed out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was time. Yeah. You know. Okay. Sorry. Man, I keep stealing your, your stuff from my No, no, I'm no. Today. No. Bad back. Um, so I guess the next kind of pivotal thing was 1992. Um, we, every fall, we took, um, maybe it was 91. I have to count. But anyway, every fall we took all the youth group. It was the biggest thing all year. I mean, we I, I was spent weeks buying food, preparing food. We took everybody on a fall retreat, uh, went up to Tim's Ford. And so Al had, I had already gone because I would go early and take the food. 
and Al would drive the bus with all the kids. And so um, I had already gotten there, and um, Kenny Bass, who used to preach at White Bluff, his wife walked into the cabin, and she's, and you know how you know somebody's going to tell you something bad? You know, and you do, and I remember distinctly backing up until I was against the wall because I really thought what she was going to tell me that the bus, something had happened. But what had happened uh, was that Michael had gotten killed. Um, he worked at, he had married, um, he did a stint in the Navy. This is our adopted child. He had done a stint in the Navy, which did not go well, came back. Um, he married a little girl from Dixon. They went to Walnut Street and he was probably at his very best, you know, um, but he worked at Tensco and he was, um, he was just sweeping and, um, one of those, a stack of those huge rolls of metal fell, um, and killed him. And, uh, so, okay. Okay. You know, you think you can tell these things after years, it's okay. but, they're still raw. So, um, yeah, he, um, place to get that news. Yeah. So what did you do? I just, I just said, I, it's in your hands. I got to go, you know, and being that type A person oh, who's checked all the, I mean, there's a death and I'm thinking, who's going to cook the chili? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, they had caught Al Thankfully, we had a friend who worked there, and really against the rules, she called and told us yeah. because she knew we were leaving. We had some of her kids. And so they called out before he left. Somebody else drove the bus. I came back. Um, but to the point about Sunday night, I remember being so—we had his funeral on a Sunday, and I remember being so exhausted. I know what I had on. I remember the chair I was sitting in. We had finished the perfunctory— meal after the funeral, you know, at our house. And we got up and went to church. And I remember being so exhausted, but that, but that I've got to be there part, you know, um, when what you needed that night was a, was to go to bed at 7 PM. I needed rest till Tuesday. Yeah. But along about that same time, we had what I called the great divorce, um, we had started, there were a lot of us who went to um, the Soul Winning Workshops and a lot of us that had started kind of questioning tradition and the way things had always been. And is that a scriptural thing or is that not, you know? And so we started, a bunch of us started meeting. Uh, we met at five o'clock on Wednesday morning and just studied the scripture. And this is how long it's been. I used to run there and back, Matthew. Because I used to run, and so we lived out Highway 47, and so I would run up to the church and do the Bible study and then run back home. So, Got your spiritual and your physical workout. Yeah, yeah. But that group became very suspect. Um, We started to get questioned. Um, We started to be looked at with suspicion. Um, I mean— and what I say is you can fool somebody for 15 minutes, but it's hard to fool somebody for 21 years. And at that point, we'd been at White Bluff 21 years serving our guts out, you know. Yeah. And I want I want to honor people involved, but let's just say we made the decision that we could not continue there. Yeah. 
um, we were told that we were getting precariously close to Belmont. So we just, I mean. not from the Nashville area and you weren't here during that era, that reference doesn't mean anything to you. But if you were in a conservative circle, that was, that was like voodoo bad. It was. That was as far out there as you could get. Um, I really loved Belmont, but I'm a rebel. You know, I still think we should have bongo drums in church. But um, I've seen the amount of rhythm our people have, so I know that it couldn't be that. You know, so I, you know, just thing, and and a lot of that, I think a lot of that growth was based on kids' question questions kids were asking us because they would ask us, "Why is it wrong to dance?" You know, and we're like, "Okay, well." why is it wrong out? Do you know? And we would ask the elders and we would get, you know, six different answers for them. I remember but, I asked about why clapping was wrong. Yeah. And I got given a couple page article and I was told this is the best article that'll explain it. And I read it and I read it. I think I read that article every night for, for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I just thought either I'm too dumb to understand this or this just doesn't make sense. And it took me probably several years to decide that the answer was number two instead of number one, mm-hmm. you know. And hand raising, I have always, I don't remember not feeling like my hands should go up. Yeah. But I was afraid to, and I knew that it, I didn't want to cause, I didn't want to offend anyone, yeah. and I didn't want to <clears throat> cause dissension, but I just felt like that there should be some outward display of what I was feeling inside. And now I just raise my hands and... I, I warned the elders here, you know, I'm a hand raiser. Is that going to be a problem? You know, and so. For one, it's in the Bible. For two. Yeah. Who cares? You're not making anyone else do it if they don't want to. Right. You know. One right. of the best services I experienced was in college. We had this devotional where we worked through the Psalms and songs uh, that talked about bodily positions for worship. Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, uh, what's the hymn? Um, we prostrate fall yeah you know? so when we, we read a scripture that had that in it then we sang that song while we sang it we laid flat on the floor yeah uh, on bended knee we come mm-hmm. we all yeah on our raising holy hands, raising holy hands. Yeah. We, uh, i stand in all of we all stood and we kind of worked through yeah a whole night of just i mean we were all a little creaky when it was done but yeah, it was a neat, neat. uh I'd love to do that again, but my joke is I can't do that in church because I have too many people who never get back up off the floor. For well, me. and I'm, now I'm one of them, you know, probably. <laughs> and she's in a boot right now as we're recording, so there's that. Yeah. So um, we, at, there were a lot of people that wanted Al to be an elder, and um, we were called in and told that he didn't need to be an elder that they'd rather us just stay youth director and directors whatever you want to call it but we just knew that wasn't quite true and um you know i can never leave anything alone so i said you know let me let me just ask it is that really true or is it something else and there was a book pulled out one of the people pulled out a book with all of our infractions listed. and um, So an elder kept a list of everything he thought was wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were things like, you didn't agree with us on this Gospel Advocate article. You continued to go to Tulsa. You, um, you know, just, I mean, that's just a couple of examples. But at that point, we just said, you know, we, uh, we, we can't stay here, you know. 
And so the bad part about that was Holly was already, uh, she had gone to Freed, met Steve, and married. And But Wes was at a very pivotal point. He was 16, you know, just getting where he could do youth group things. And we made the move to Walnut Street. We stayed there for four years. Um, kind of got him through school. Yeah, I got him through school, but he never, I mean, he was a cowboy boot wearing steer wrestling, you know, unfortunately snuff dipping, you know, cowboy. And they're just, he never really fit. And we love, love the people there. And my family's been there, but we went to Pegram to just kind of visit there and see and ended up staying there for years and years. And, um, I had finally graduated to teach adults. I started with cradle roll and went all the way through. And so I taught, I was an elder there for years. And I, I, I was just went to a ladies class one day and the woman who was teaching said, can you substitute next week and forever? And <laughs> next uh, week and forever. So I ended up teaching a ladies class there for 10 years, you know, and just, just loved it. Um, you know, the stuff you've talked about, um, I appreciate um, you. Okay, I can say this so that you didn't. The church did some stupid stuff in this story, but you told this story without bitterness, anger, hate, and malice. No. You just said this was a thing. And, and you know, now that we're a couple of decades removed from this story, it's pretty easy for me to say, you know, there's this little verse in Corinthians about love doesn't keep books of the things that people do that are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty clear to see this is this is a problem. Yeah. And this is not being said to bash it. And a lot of the people there in these churches have changed in yeah. these years. So, and know. and I really, it's kind of like my mom and dad. I really don't think it was with ill intentions. I really believe that they thought they were doing the right thing. They were protecting the flock out of, in some misguided they they were accountable way. For what yeah. yeah. So I want to go back to, back to the very beginning of what you said. You talked about how you grew up with mm-hmm. a fear-based faith. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing in this story was there is a lot of that going on. And what caused this trouble in the church was someone who was afraid, not just for their faith, but for yours, mm-hmm. and that you might contaminate somebody. Yeah, yeah. And that was the way we felt, that we were a pariah, you know. But I'm, I still love those people. I don't have any ill will, you know. I just, it was just a season, and it was time for us to move to a new season. Yeah. And, and that's, um, that's, the church is bigger than a congregation. Yeah. We didn't leave the Lord. We just left that flock and went to another. Um I would like to go back to one more thing before we go too much further, and we may be here all day. <laughs> well, I don't want to take too much time. Uh, but take as much as you want. It's a lot of time, stuff. Time is free. Okay. You know? And if we have to, we'll break this into two episodes or something like oh, that. That'll okay. be all right. Uh, but you, you talked again, Tulsa, late 70s, early 80s, was where your faith started to change. Mm-hmm. You mentioned grace and the Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. I want to go back to that, that question, that idea. Mm-hmm. Do you remember anything about... What you learned, how you learned it, that kind of helped to bring you out of the fear-based mindset, because there's still a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, well, at that time, there were all, Terry Rush, Jeff Walling. Um, <clears throat> I can't even I can't even think of all the speakers, but they just presented, for lack of a better word, new material. Yeah. You know, it wasn't fear-based, and it wasn't uh, list based and it was so much about 
you know, Jesus died on the cross. He bled and died so that we don't have to live in fear. And nothing we do is going to be good enough. There's not enough boxes we can check. There's not enough works we can do to make us good enough. Anything we do is just out of sheer gratitude for what he has already done. And we can't mess it up. I mean, I I don't say that lightly. No, that's not lightly. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to Miranda's episode on the way here, and and it's been a few weeks ago since that that came out, probably by the time people hear this. But she talked about how she wasn't baptized because she wasn't good enough to do it, because that was the idea that people mm-hmm. people gave her intentionally, unintentionally. Maybe she made it up herself, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was this, I've got to be enough to come to God. Yeah. And it's almost like people don't realize that we've been singing for 200 years, just as I am without one plea. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thought was, I think, in past years, you've got to get it together. And that and that unfortunately, that's kind of how Al felt, that he had to get it right before he could commit, which is so wrong. I don't care what kind of pit you're in, what kind of mess you're in. You can start right there, right there. You know, you don't have to do anything to start the journey. Yeah. You, you know, now. I know what the gospel says, and I know what's right and what's wrong, and and that's not to be taken lightly. But you don't have to get all that right. Do you want to sing an invitation song real quick? <laughs> you know, just as I am. Let's do it. You know? <laughs> um, it's a good one. It's a good one for a reason. Yeah. So just hearing things presented, you know, just from the gospel, and and just focused on, and and I had never, ever heard about the Holy Spirit other than. Uh, the the explanation I was given was that it lived in the Bible, and that was its role. Was it it lived it was in the it was in the Word, you know. That never mind those verses that say you know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. That you know we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Helper, Counselor, you know. And to start to see the role and the possibilities with the Holy Spirit, yeah, ooh, you know. But that didn't sit well with some people. Well, we thought it was Pentecostal. James Hinkle said to me one time, he said, our theology of the Holy Spirit was more formed by our debates with the Pentecostals than it was by the Scripture. Yep. Um, And And I think that's true with many. We've spent so much time focusing on our differences with other denominations that we've failed to, if we united if we are united, if all believers in Jesus united, say, where abortion's concerned, where so many of the things, if we unite. How many kids are in foster care in the state of Tennessee? Right. The church could solve this problem this week. This all week. All the churches got together and did something. Yeah. You know, if, I forget what the number was, but if, you know, the number of churches there were, if every church in the count, in the, in the state of Tennessee took one child. Yeah. The foster system would be empty. Yeah. And. Hello, Burns could take one. Mm-hmm. Burns could take three. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, White Bluff could take three. Yeah. Pegram could take three. Yeah. Walnut Street could take 10. Yeah. And I've mentioned Jordan Peterson to you yeah. before, and I know we kind of have differing but opinions about him, but I absolutely love him. And I've kind of watched his evolving into belief in God. And I watched something of him the other day, podcast. I can't remember, but. Anyway, he said, 
he decided a long time ago to live as if God existed because it was the right, it was a good way to live and just in case, you know. But he said he couldn't fully commit because he thought, he said it scared him to death that if you really believe it, if you really believe what the Word says, what what should you be like? What should the world be like? What should all the people who profess that, what what would it be like? And he said he never felt like he could be good enough to be. What well, it, it was powerful. And and we're right back at the same problem we keep talking about. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. Well, Marsha, this seems like a good place for us to take a break because you still have a lot of story yet to come. So I think we'll make this uh, the first ever Rough Drafts two-parter. So let's say you come back on Thursday and let's finish this story about how God has been at work in your life. Thanks for listening to Rough Drafts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review. Until next time, let's keep looking for how God writes His love into our stories.